Hello, and welcome to another episode of Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm your host for today, Rich Chrisman, and I'm joined by our podcast guru, Cody Schweikert. What's up? And a friend of mine for almost eight years now, Grayson Quay. Hey, happy to be here. Grayson is a freelance writer living in Arlington, Virginia, and we actually know each other from our time at Grove City College initially, but also from a few other projects over time since then. Uh, Many of you guys might not know this, listeners and also Forefront team members, but uh, Grayson has actually been a friend of Forefront longer than anyone at Forefront besides Nate himself. Um, Grayson collaborated with Nate, and I was involved in this as well, when Nate made the Pastime short film back in 2015, and Grayson was present at the Forefront Festival in 2015 in Pittsburgh, um, having helped out with the short film and whatnot. And uh, if you're someone that frequents the Forefront website, I'm pretty sure Grayson is in the little photo slides in the front. So you guys, you know, may know him without knowing him so far. Yeah, it was uh, good times holding that big heavy boom mic <laughs> out in Rochester. Oh, you were a boomer before. You were <laughs> but um, no, that's amazing. Yeah, good times. That uh, it is funny. That feels like so long ago, but also not that long ago. Yeah, it was. I I still look fondly back on that. I remember you showing us all the cool spots in Rochester. So. Yeah, <laughs> kind of got a garbage plate, which I might not have done otherwise. Yes, Jim Gaffigan's been really into the garbage plate recently too. So you can right. you know, join that. Cody, <laughs> didn't you watch Pastime a short film very recently? I did, man. I watched it like a couple months ago for the first time, and. I was blown away by it, man. I think I would have liked it even if I knew that one of my best friends didn't direct it. So <laughs> I, I was kind of primed to like it either way. I think even if it was bad, I would have told Nate I loved it because I'm just a, a good friend. But um, I, tr- I truly enjoyed it. It was so clever and well done, and like like everything Nate does. And uh, yeah, I've, I've heard about uh, a lot of people that uh, behind the scenes that made that possible. So nice. yeah. Well, the reason I ended up working on that is actually back in 2012 and 2013, I worked on a feature film that Nate made when he was in college called Asleep in a Storm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was a really fun experience. It was definitely a, a learning curve for everyone, which I think uh, everyone involved would say we've um, we've all really developed. But it was a really, really important experience just making this this feature length movie mm-hmm. um, and kind of figuring it out as we went. And it was really, really fun. Yeah, I'm sure. a forefront live stream of a sleep in a storm at some point. I know oh, that'd be I, great. I haven't <laughs> seen it. I'm trying to convince Nate to to do another feature. He before you know before Jesus comes back, that man's going to make another movie, and I got to get a piece of it. Yeah, I uh, I don't know anything about being in movies or making movies, but I am all in. I will yeah. I will be the the grocery runner if I have to. I just want to be a part of something like that. Such that's a- what I was. I was the uh, pick up the actors from the train station and or airport and drive them <laughs> to various spots. But, you know, it was a lot of fun. I was going to say, in Asleep in a Storm, I did mostly the same thing I did for Pastime, which was sound uh, recording. But I did also have a small acting role. I had one line. Hey. Uh, you know, so that, nice. was, uh, that was my, my 15 minutes of fame. That's my, awesome. my entire IMDb page. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous now. I didn't know we had like a, a movie star in our midst. Otherwise, I'm going to be awkward for the rest of the interview now because I'm a little, I'm a little starstruck. I, don't, don't worry. I think the only person who's ever recognized me from that role is Nate's mom when I stayed with his family in Rochester. <laughs> Nate's mom is the best. Oh, oh she's man. great. All right. So, uh, 
is it time for lightning round questions, Rich? I think so. I, I think we started a new tradition. We can't have a special guest on without hitting them with some lightning. So I think you can take us that way, Cody. Yeah, I mean, this is just like, you know, Grayson, you're new to the uh, Forefront 360 show. And so we just wanted to, it's just a little get to know you a little better. So uh, before we, we dive deep into the uh, the more complex philosophical musings of poetic craft... <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do some lowbrow stuff here, which I love almost as much as the highbrow stuff on this show. Sounds good to me. Um, cool. All right. So this is just first thing that comes to mind. Don't, don't overthink this Coke or Pepsi Coke, Apple or Android Android by temperament, but I actually own an Apple. Okay. Ooh, all right. Complicated. All right. Sweet or salty either depending on my mood, but don't mix them. No fries in the frosty. Oh, wow. Mm. Okay. No Step- salted caramel? <laughs> oh, that might be an exception. Oh, okay. All right. pretty good. All right. Which is your favorite of the three Lord of the Rings films? Uh, as far as filmmaking craft, the first one, as far as just making me feel feelings, the third one. Mm. All right. Good. That's, that's a great answer. Uh, which is your favorite of the three Godfather films? Haven't seen the third one, but I've heard I don't need to, except for that one scene where he talks to the Pope. And uh, I think the first one's probably my favorite. Oh my gosh, man! I'm I'm I like this guy already, Rich. Um, yeah, I've, yeah. I've been obsessed with Godfather movies lately. Um, I, I won't. I threw I, that I, in there as a little bone for you, Cody. Thank you, man. I you threw that question in there, and I was I was actually worried that uh, yeah. that Grayson hadn't even seen them, which a lot of people our age have uh, not even seen these movies. So I'm. I'm glad. I think I agree with you. I, I could go all day about Godfather. I will I will move on. <laughs> what right. was really shocking to me is uh, my wife's family is Italian-American, and but she doesn't watch a whole lot of movies. So I was asking her about all these movies. I was like, oh, have you seen The Godfather? Have you seen Goodfellas? And she hadn't seen any of them. I was like, oh, I have to introduce you to your own heritage here. Oh, right? <laughs> so we just watched Goodfellas, and we're going to get to The Godfather next, hopefully. Nice. Classic. All right. <laughs> Would you rather fight one adult male gorilla or 10 baby cobras? Gorilla for sure. I don't like the whole slithery thing. Yeah. Okay. What What is the weapon you would use? Like the most embarrassing secret about the gorilla's childhood, just so I could like blurt <laughs> that out and gain the psychological advantage early on. No. Wow. So I see. You're not even thinking like a gun or a sword. You're going psychological. That is it's probably a good strategy. A smart. Yeah. Well, uh, on that note, um, did you think Carol Baskins killed her husband? Mm-hmm. yeah i think so i mean if your relationship starts with uh you pointing a gun at him you know the first <laughs> night you met there's there's not too many other places it can go <laughs> yeah i mean so good. the the line about the sardine oil the whole thing i mean we can, this is not a tiger king uh podcast otherwise we'd go deep in that but um thank god it's not a tiger king podcast oh my lanta um, <laughs> uh, so grayson trip to alaska or paris Ooh. see normally i would say paris but like i don't know i feel like i've been getting more naturey as i as time's gone on so mm-hmm. i definitely wouldn't say no to alaska i mean not trying to recreate the whole chris mccandless experience but oh. <laughs> perfect yeah. i agree uh favorite beatles tune hey jude nice Ooh. is a hot dog a sandwich i would argue no uh I can, I can give you reasons, but give me, give me your best reason. So I think my best reason is that it's, um, there's not like space between the two breads, right? Oh, mm. 
That's, that's logical. Um, okay. I get that. I would yeah. say I would say it's not a sandwich because it's a hot dog. Moving on. <laughs> uh, one state you'd you have not been to but would like to visit. Montana. Mm. Oh, that's literally what I was thinking. Yeah. I want to go there. You know, Montana is John Steinbeck's favorite state. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, I read that about him. He's very uh very it's passionate cool. about Montana. Yeah. Um all right. Uh one country that you have not been to but would like to visit someday. Hmm. Uh, Russia. Russia. What? That's surprising. Why Russia? I don't know. I just like, I've been kind of jonesing to just like go to Moscow and like (laughs) see some beautiful Eastern Orthodox churches and, you know, check out Lenin behind his little glass box. (laughs) In his little snow white coffin. (laughs) Who doesn't doesn't jones for Moscow now and again? I totally (laughs) Uh, get Cats or dogs? I hope that I hope that last question doesn't like come up when I run for office. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, this is something that I'm kind of in flux on. I was a dog person all the time growing up, and I thought I didn't like cats, but then my wife and I got a cat, and it turns out I just didn't like cats that were jerks. <laughs> <laughs> I totally respect that, man. I want to like cats, but I've only met I've only met jerk cats in my life, and I've only you meet, met you meet one dog. good cat, and it changes everything. Yeah, man. I, I, I keep hearing that. Like, I, I'm kind of known for being not a cat person, and everyone keeps telling me that I just haven't met the right cat. So, you know, I believe that. <laughs> what yeah. I will say, though, is that the qualities that make a good cat are very dog-like qualities. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think I might actually just still be a dog person. Yep. That's yep. a good analysis. Okay. Good. Uh, hey, well done. You survived the lightning round. That wasn't so bad. Yeah, you survived. Um, Lightning yeah, struck many times. We're still alive. It did. Um, Rich, what, what's phase one? Walk us through this. Rich yeah. organized this episode, and Rich, you just did a fantastic job structuring this. I mean, you're you're born for radio, my man. I oh, really please. respect you. Uh, I hate listening to my own voice, though, so I may or may not listen to this episode. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I get to experience it live. But anyway, so uh, of many reasons that we'd love to, you know, have a conversation with Grayson. One of them is the fact that um, back in February of this year, before uh, the world, you know, changed forever because of quarantine and whatnot, um, Grayson had two poems published in the New English Review. And I came across these poems, I think on Facebook. I'm not sure where I saw it originally, but um, the poems uh, really struck me. And you know, not only is Grayson my friend, but when I started reading, I really got uh, kind of sucked in and I was particularly uh, kind of, I don't know what the word is, but my emotions were very much stirred by uh, references that he has to um, Shakespeare and mythology and things like that in there, and as well as uh, there's, well, you know what, I'll let you guys experience it for yourself. So first, um, I would love to invite Grayson to read uh, his poems for us, and then we can kind of have a little discussion about it. So, uh, this first one's called Macbeth's First Witch. I was an anxious village girl who felt the planet's steady whirl transfix me in a mundane home beneath God's whelming overdome, which capped my flattened parchment world. I longed to burn the edges curled. At eight, I set the heath aflame, and on a playmate laid the blame. At fifteen, with our secret sealed, I lured two boys into the field. We splayed me out as on a rack while Heather bit into my back. At night, I'd slip from bed and shout beneath the cosmos, let me out. They catechized the life divine in flakes of bread and sips of wine and promised an eternal place if I could but my will erase. But crushed beneath the silence cruel, I struck dumb saints with mason's tool. 
And in the vestry dark heaved up my stolen wine, refilled my cup, till on the floor I spun at odds with all designs that they gall gods. Twas then the Belgium mistress came and asked of me my given name, which I gave to and for her power, and have not thought of since that hour. Dislodged from time and self and peace, I've lost volition to caprice, and augmented with what deprives I torment pious sailors' wives. Incapable of loyalty, I fear the goddess Hecate, but stumble toward her as I flee the man among the myrtle trees. That threatening grove so lately grown, that haven only faced alone. Now poster of the land and sky, I fly in spirals until I am everywhere and fill with me, heaven, hell, the heath and sea, till I upon myself collapse in solace of perpetual lapse. Cody, first reactions. This dude is spitting. Man, I, I, uh, I, I just, it's extremely, uh, rhythmic and, um, the, the narrative is, uh, you know, noteworthy. I'm not always aware of, uh, a narrative poem, but I could, I could very clearly follow, um, a, a plot and, uh, um, I think the the rhyme scheme contributed to that. So yeah, that, that's that's just beautiful, man. The language just beautiful. Thank you very much. I gotta say, I have read this a number of times, uh, but hearing you read it out loud, actually, I was able. I focused on different sections that I think I may have like kind of quickly gone over when I was reading it myself. So I, it was really cool to hear you read it, uh, specifically the line. Um, but crushed beneath the silence cruel, I struck dumb saints with mason's tools. That like this hit me. I felt struck by that. Anyway, I just thought. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, Cody. I, um, so yeah, you picked up on a lot of the, the stuff that are sort of my building blocks for sure. Um, yeah, the rhythm is, it's iambic tetrameter, which is something I'm really drawn to. Um, so like iambic pentameter, which is what Shakespeare's poems are written in, very much mimics the like flow of natural conversation, whereas tetrameter really encourages you to like slow down and feel the beats of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more of a chant. Um, so like the dwarves song in The Hobbit is in iambic tetrameter, and that really gives it that ponderous feeling. So that's something I'm really drawn to. And yeah, I, I'd been wanting to kind of try my hand at a more narrative poem for a while, and I was uh, happy with how this turned out. Wait, super quick for our listeners, break down tetrameter. So what's that? Yeah, so tetrameter is tetra, which is four. So there's four beats in each line, essentially. So it's, if you listen, the each line goes kind of ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, okay, so I got to, this is, I'm so glad this conversation is about to happen because um, I, you know, I, I've tried to write poetry for several years and um thought I was amazing when I started writing poetry at 19 years old, you know, in, in college. And I look back on that stuff now. I'm like, ugh. but, um, I, you know, I've, my, my passion for that craft has kind of continued as, as I enter my, my mid to late twenties. And, uh, I, the one thing that I've always, uh, had an ambivalent relationship with is form. And so I, I was, uh, got to interview, uh, ben Myers, who's a great friend of Forefront and amazing poet, uh, amazing man. And uh, he he told me that, you know, rather than seeing form as restrictive, like a straitjacket, um, he quoted somebody and said, you know, straitjacket form to a poet is like a straitjacket to 
Houdini, something like that, right? So <laughs> the form isn't like restrictive, that. but the form allows you to enter a conversation with voices from the past and add a add a verse. And so I, I want to ask you, I have so much trouble like even measuring things like uh, the, the iambic pentameter and even meter and rhythm are, are not the things that drew me to poetry. Um, they're the more mathematical elements that I actually don't uh, comprehend really naturally or easily. So tell me about uh, form and, and did you decide on this form before you started writing or talk a little bit about that? Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure I decided on the form necessarily. I think the the subject matter sort of dictated the form to me in a way, um, which there's uh, a, a poet who I can, um, who I have a love-hate relationship, Alexander Pope, hmm. um, from the kind of age of reason in England. But he said the sound must have an echo of the sense. So this idea that there needs to be a relationship between form and content mm-hmm. in poetry and that that relationship should make sense on some level. Um, and then also I, I really like the, uh, the idea of a straight jacket for Houdini. The metaphor I always go to with form is uh, it's from GK Chesterton. I forget which book, but he said, imagine an Island in the sea uh, with on all sides, there's a sheer drop off a cliff down onto sharp rocks. And then the Island's filled with children. Um, and there's a wall around the edge of the Island. Mm-hmm. Um, that wall is like form or, or dogma or whatever. And as long as that wall is there, the children can play as rough as they want. Um, they can, you know, run and jump and swing and everything. But if you take the wall away, what you're going to find is all the children huddled up in the middle of the Island, terrified. Wow. Um, wow. So that's amazing because I, uh, sorry to jump in. I just, that really speaks to me because I have, and actually we'll get to this later with another question, but um, I, find a lot of times that I really uh, just admire poetry from the 19th century and the early 20th century more than a lot of uh, more like modern or contemporary poetry. And I feel like I've been wrestling a lot with why that is. And I feel like sometimes it is because, and I'm not saying that formless poetry is inherently bad or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes without form, poetry becomes very simple and there's not like I like what what Chesterton said about like how they can play as rough as they want within those walls, and you get like almost these like explosions of like emotion that are kept safe within the walls of the poem. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just think that's cool. It reminds me of the the uh, kind of Christian truth of you know God's law is is not not actually meant to restrict us from whatever enjoyment or living life fully. Uh, God's laws are are given to maximize our enjoyment and so that we can't it liberates us to live life fully and that you know that's not yeah. that not that free verse is sinful or something yeah. but yeah. uh yeah. yeah I mean I've I've definitely written in free verse before um and I think there's a lot of merit to that and I think there's a lot of poets that do really amazing things with it but I think it comes back to there needs to be some relationship between what you're saying and what you're doing with language. Um, and as long as, as long as there's kind of a discernible relationship there, I think that that um, can qualify as, as really good poetry. Hmm. Awesome. I have a, I have a question for you. Uh, we can probably break more into this later after you have read your second poem as well, but um, w- like there are so many references and allusions in here 
And so what, like, were you like reading uh, Macbeth or other like, you know, kind of classical literature and that kind of inspired you to begin writing this? Or did you begin writing and then want to like call to something and then use the classics? Like, what's your journey there? So I, as near as I can remember, um, I wrote this, uh, I wrote this a while back, actually. I think I might've written this in the summer of maybe 2017. And I did some editing on it before I, um, before I submitted it for publication. But uh, a few years before that, I'd actually directed, uh, been the assistant director on a high school production of Macbeth. And part of that process was, you know, helping the actors out and especially the three girls who played the witches Mm -hmm. Um, and really trying to figure out how to kind of on a shoestring budget with high school actors actually make the witches scary. And that, and that, you know, sort of necessitated trying to get in their heads a little bit. And it was really, really, it was a really, really fun, but kind of terrifying experience at the same time. Um, A few other kind of, um influences i guess were there was a i believe a 2015 film version of macbeth is that the one um, with uh the... i know marion cotillard plays lady yeah. macbeth yeah 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 that's the one yeah 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 it's it's pretty good um yeah, one thing i really like about it is that it's shot very much on location and they really try to embody the um kind of 11th century scotland thing of it so part of it was just the landscape just kind of the sheer breadth and emptiness of it um another sort of landscape that influenced the way i wrote this was the way that terrence malick shoots um i think montana actually maybe that's why Mm. i said that state in his movie to the wonder where there's kind of this community of homes and then there's just empty land for as far as the eye can see and then mountains Mm -hmm. and just how living in a world in a landscape like that kind of affects your view of yourself, your view of your community, your view of faith. Um, and yeah, so I was just kind of trying to get into the head of uh, one of the witches from Macbeth and try to think, you know, who were you? How did you become this? Mm. This is so um, Yeah, this is amazing. I love, ooh. that's good. Yeah. Another thing I thought of too that I had in mind, I guess, is I've seen a lot of articles and things like that about... Uh, witchcraft recently and the kind of revival of witchcraft as Mm. this kind of female empowerment movement Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it strikes me as as very strange because the obviously they have a kind of a different take on what witchcraft is which has been historically debunked was that it's like some kind of a vestige of of ancient paganism which it really isn't but that's a totally other issue Mm -hmm. um but if you just look at the witches in Macbeth, they're powerful in the sense that they have knowledge and magic Um, but they're also fairly powerless in that they're kind of reduced to just, uh, this kind of petty evil, almost like, um, sort of like the unmanned character in Paralander by C.S. Lewis, where Mm. he's totally content to just nag ransom, like a, you know, like a middle school bully or something like that. Mm. It's just any kind of small meanness he can do is, is fine with him. And yeah so that was kind of uh you know some of the the witches do large evil things like destabilizing a whole kingdom but they also do stupid evil things like torture this sailor's wife while he's away for no good reason um so i i really thought of it in the sense of like 
you can cross certain lines and do certain things in order to gain uh, a feeling of power or empowerment. But in the end, you're ultimately, it kind of goes back to the conversation we're having about form. You're sort of taking away the walls that Mm -hmm. uh, gave you freedom within your proper sphere. Mm -hmm. And when you transgress that sphere, you can, you know, potentially gain new, new insights or new abilities, but you've also sort of disfigured your own soul. And Uh, it's amazing. Um, I, I want to, I'm trying to bite my tongue cause I want to go deeper in that and the idea of being influenced by other writing. But, um, I have a feeling that we can continue that conversation after in our reaction to the next piece. Do we want to read that, that next poem now? Yeah, sure. I can do that. So the second one is called Scamandros and Golgotha. Um, just for like a brief explanatory note, Scamandros is the river in the Iliad that runs between the Achaean or Greek camp on the beaches and the city of Troy. And there's a scene in book 21 where Achilles is kind of fording the river and just killing insane numbers of people as he does. So, um, and then I have Brad, a, that's Brad Pitt, right? right? Brad Pitt. Yeah. Yeah. Brad Pitt. yeah, exactly. Gosh, that movie's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But there's a, an epigraph I have here that's four lines that um, I gave the epigraph in Greek uh, just because I think it's fun to give epigraphs in the original languages, but I don't actually speak Greek, so I'm not going to try to read it. Um, I will read it from the translation, though. And I'll actually back up a few lines, too. This is from Richmond Lattimore's translation, just to give some context. So Achilles sees a Trojan warrior who, in a previous battle, he'd captured and sold into slavery, and the guy somehow made his way back to Troy and was freed and is back on the battlefield. And Achilles is just stunned at seeing this guy who should have been out of the fight back in the fight. And Achilles says to himself, can this be, here's a strange thing that my eyes look on. Now the great hearted Trojans, even those I have killed already will stand up and rise again out of the gloom and the darkness as this man has come back and escaped the day without pity, though he was sold unto sacred Lemnos. But the main of the gray sea could not hold him though. It holds back many who are unwilling, but come now he must be given a taste of our spearhead so that I may know inside my heart and make certain whether he will come back even from there or the prospering earth will hold him. She who holds back even the strong man. Hmm. Um, and now I'll just uh, go ahead and read my poem and then we can talk about that. A sunrise to sunset, Sisyphean slaughter looms before the godlike son of Nereus's daughter. Economy of Cleos hollowed out beside the water. The gift of death and destiny itself begin to totter. To gain the life the gods set by and hoard like silver talents. To drink ambrosia thick like blood and make the grave a dalliance. To find the path from death to life would throw it all off balance, though we be torn by bronze or steel or raked by harpy's talons. I like to think Longinus must have known his Homer well, and seen the thing the blind bard sensed but could not know or tell, when he made trial of the strong and spilled out over hell the Icris streams that never will run dry but overswell. I love that one. Oh, thank you very much. It's it's so it's just so clean and tight and loaded with illusion. It feels like a there's just treasure in there to be mined. And um, I'm, I'm now sad that we don't have, you know, we, we don't have the time to, I think we could have spent um, a couple hours just on the first piece, let alone this one too. So we, we won't do it justice, man, but uh, what, what a, what a poem, man. Um, yeah. Thank you. I'm really, um, you know, I've always been really grabbed by uh, T.S. Eliot's essay, um, a tradition of the individual talent where he talks about how when you're, 
writing a poem, you're sort of automatically in conversation with everything that came before you. Mm-hmm. And his big thing that uh, that his sort of very controversial statement he made was that the poet's job is not to necessarily be expressive or original. His job is to, his mind is to sort of act as a catalyst to take those elements of tradition and kind of synthesize them in a new way. Okay. Okay. That's exactly where I wanted to go, but that's when I bit my tongue. So, (laughs) so like I said, at the beginning of my, my kind of exploring this idea and trying to be creative with, with poetry, I thought that free verse was just the way to go. It was, it was woke. It was, it was freedom. It meant um, originality in in a time where I felt drowned by reboots and movie theaters and like everything's derivative and um you know i just am thirsty to consume and create something original Mm -hmm. and i think that at first glance that seems like a really noble pursuit but uh i i think like as i've had conversations with people like you and rich and um i'm starting to see that like we need to not only acknowledge that we're being influenced by everything that's come before us, but that that's a, that's okay. And that we should lean into that and not try to lock ourselves in, in an isolated portion of our mind. Um, I don't, I don't know. That's my thoughts have changed about that. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think there's certainly something to be said for the idea of originality, but I think it's CS Lewis said something about how, if you're trying your hardest to be original, you're probably going to produce something very bland. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't worry about being original, um, you will probably say something that's genuinely original. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think that the ability to kind of take things from all over the place and put them together is, and I think it's an honest way of, of writing poetry because you can't really ever have a clean break with the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, there's a phrase that um, really stuck in my head. I don't even remember where I first heard it, but it's the idea of having what's called a usable past. Like how do you view what's come before you in a way that you can make sense of and use? And I think everyone needs a usable past, sort of any attempt to have a clean break like that. In, in history or the arts has usually collapsed on itself very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, in the abolition of man, C.S. Lewis says there's certain principles that make up what he calls the Tao. Um, mm-hmm. And every kind of every thought system that presents itself as an innovation is just taking one aspect of that and over emphasizing it. That is so, I haven't read that, uh, that Lewis book, but that is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Like I I got to read that now. No, but the idea that like, it seems like all these new like philosophies and ways of thought, like if you really look into them, you're really just picking like one aspect of life or like understanding or spirituality and like pouring so much energy into like one side. That's so interesting. Yeah. So geez, where were we with, uh, with poetry? Um, oh, my bad. Yeah, so I, <laughs> sorry, it's just getting too deep into this. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I really enjoyed writing this. Um, Part of it was at the time I was actually um, teaching uh, the Iliad to high school students and, you know, actually wrote this sitting on a bench outside the school building. Nice. And what a a poet, what an artist. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's, I brought in a couple, I tried to bring in some other sort of 
ancient literature as well. So I have a few references in there to the um, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of the gods hoarding life like silver talents um, and the idea of there being no path from death to life is... Those are two ideas from this kind of climactic scene in the Epic of Gilgamesh where he's... Uh, Gilgamesh is two-thirds god, which genealogically doesn't make any sense, but that's the myth. Um, <laughs> and his best friend dies, and he's heartbroken. So he goes on this quest uh, to try to find him. And ultimately, he meets a character named, I think, Utnapishtim, who's the... I think it's I think it's that character who's kind of the equivalent of Noah in our sto- in uh, the Bible. There's a sort of a parallel flood story in Babylonian mythology, and Utnapishtim basically tells him like, "Give up. Um, life belongs to the gods. They sort of lend it to humanity temporarily, um, and then it goes away. And there's just no way out of that." <laughs> mm-hmm. um, whereas. Achilles has this, I think, like kind of flash of insight, like what would what would it mean if that wasn't the case? What would it mean if there was something outside of this kind of circumscribing uh, force of death? Uh, what would it what would it mean about the way I personally live my life? Because I have the word kleos in there, which is glory in Greek or fame. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole sort of economy of it. And the the sort of thing that makes that currency of fame work is the fact that everyone's going to die. Uh, They even say the gods have no use for fame or glory because they can't die. So they can't actually risk anything. Wow. Um, So, so, so I feel like we, we need, it's like being begged to be asked at this point, like walk us through that connection to Golgotha. Yeah. So that's my question. What are you trying to highlight by juxtaposing like the story from the Iliad and the the place of the skull where Christ was crucified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that comes in in the third stanza there where uh, Longinus uh, or St. Longinus is traditionally the name of the Roman soldier who stabbed Christ with a spear. And that's been presented in a number of ways that action. Uh, Sometimes it's presented as a, um, an act of just senseless cruelty. Mm -hmm. Um, But the tradition is that he eventually becomes a Christian. So I thought that if that's true, then Perhaps there was something else there. Um, you know, there is the there is that saying, um, surely this man is the son of God uh, at the, that the centurion says at the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't believe that's the same character uh, necessarily. Maybe it could be. But so I thought of him stabbing him with the spear almost as a way of testing that, of saying like, hmm. okay, if you're let's I want to make sure that you really, really are dead, um, which the separation of blood and water proves sort of medically um because you claimed to have a way out of this you know you claimed to have a way out of the sort of system of the world and the way it works and i you know i'm going to make trial of uh, i'm going to make trial of you to see if that's true if that's something that you really have it sounds like in both poems, you're really trying to put yourself in the minds of characters that, um, and that's a, that's a method of like exploration and creativity that I've never really thought about, but seems like a really fruitful place to, uh, to, to think and explore and create. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, in the first one and in some, not so much in the second one, but definitely in the first poem, it's kind of a, a persona poem, uh, which was really big among kind of like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and those people. And it's it's definitely a fun way to write to kind of create a character and, you know, maybe infuse some of yourself into it, but also um, kind of other things and other influences and speculation. I think it's yeah. a, a good way to kind of expand your mind rather than just to, I think often poetry, for me at least, turns into kind of unproductive navel gazing. And I think that's one way to avert mm-hmm. that problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Um, before we, we move away from these specific poems and just kind of talk about poetry as an art form, uh, any final questions, Cody, or you feel I like? Just, I just would like to say um, no, no, no more questions on this, even though I could ask a million, but I just want to say that uh the the last line in the second stanza is just excellent um specifically that that last phrase raked by harpy's talons um i just think it's a perfect image it's each word is perfect the the verb raked there um just awesome awesome line that was my favorite little chunk so thank you so much i appreciate that (laughs) yeah the like you said in the beginning or in your first reaction cody i think the like there's like a musical conciseness to the mm-hmm. poem. Like, you know, it's, it, uh, it's much shorter than the one we heard first, but like, there's like kind of a beauty to that as well, which is pretty cool. Mm. Awesome. Okay. Now I'd love to kind of shift the conversation to just a broader conversation on poetry. Um, Cody and myself have dabbled in poetry and obviously Grayson has written poetry and we're all fans of, uh, the form. So, uh, Grayson, I'd love to pose this question to you. So poetry, as we've already mentioned, is an ancient art form, um, possibly, you know, one of the oldest forms of art. Um, it doesn't get nearly as much airtime, if we can call it that, as it used to. Like, you don't see people walking around as much with books of poetry. Um, and I don't know if, you know, if we ever did that, but well, first of all, do you share my experience that poetry seems to be less popular than it once was? So, yeah, I think poetry's definitely suffered a uh, suffered a loss of of popularity over the years. Um, you know, if you go back to the ancient world, if you go back to Homer and Virgil and you know Beowulf and things like that, the poetry's written according to a very uh, the poetry's written to according to a very specific form and with you know, heavy beats and a lot of alliteration. Um, if you read the Iliad, it's, there's an enormous amount of repetition and all these qualities are because they want to make it easy to memorize. Right. Um, you know, the rhapsodes who traveled around Greece and would recite the entire Iliad, they had to do it essentially from memory because many of them were actually illiterate. So, um, yeah, it's estimated the Iliad would take about 24 hours to read aloud. So the, the prevailing theory is that, it, they would perform it over three days. So you would come and just listen to the Iliad for eight hours a day. Oh my goodness. Uh, All right. Sean O'Hare, are you listening? Um, <laughs> you've got some work to do, my friend. Seriously. Yeah. So at that point, the like invocation of the muse that always starts, it seems to make much more sense because you can imagine how the sort of translate state trance like state you'd have to be in to recite all that poetry over that extended a period of time. But yeah, I think, I think from there, obviously uh, it being, kind of the number one form of literature and being very kind of digestible. 
it's gone downhill and become in the sense that it's become more provincial. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of poetry nowadays is sort of written by poets for poets or mm-hmm. by poets for academics. Yeah. Um, so there's movements in poetry like uh, post-conceptual poetry, which is focused on kind of taking, it's very postmodern and focuses on kind of taking found objects or found texts and revamping them, incorporating them into poems. So there's one post-conceptual poet I know of who writes poems that consist entirely of the titles of cheap romance novels arranged in a certain order. Mm -hmm. And some of them are quite interesting poems, I think, but post-conceptual poetry is, um, has essentially no mass appeal. It's basically a movement within poetry and within academia. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you kind of have more what you, what would pass for popular poetry today, uh, stuff like, uh, Instagram poetry, um, so kind of Rupi Kaur or yeah. Colin Andrew Yost yeah. or Graham Drake, which if you've never read Colin Andrew Yost, it's an absolutely hilarious experience. <laughs> I'll have to do I think that, uh, I think that I sound like a cr- crotchety old literature nerd here, but it's, it sounds like multimedia and, um, just the, the instantaneous way we consume, um, you know, texts these days has made poetry kind of more of a chore you know it takes you know Mm -hmm. for many of us myself included like it takes me a few times to read a poem before i start to appreciate it and so um it it takes more work and uh in in a in a day and age when everything is streamed and fast and easy Mm -hmm. uh, it's it it does feel a little bit out of place to to spend uh several minutes staring at one page and thinking about it you know yeah i think there's i think there's sort of a paradox here because it takes way less time to read the words of a poem than it does to kind of read the words of a novel or a short story so i think that could kind of explain the rise of instagram poetry where it's the the entire meaning of it is all right there uh the line breaks are very arbitrary there's not really anything going on in terms of um alliteration or consonants or assonance or rhyme scheme or anything it's just sort of very simple kind of musings mm-hmm. um which are very easily digestible it's sort of like junk food whereas you know if whereas uh you know you take a, a poem by someone like t.s Eliot. Eliot said you know i want someone reading my poem to have to do as much work as a lawyer preparing to argue a case see that is that is such a polarizing kind of way to approach it what, what do you think of that yeah well i think for a lot of people the knee-jerk response to that is well who do you think you are <laughs> and, and i think you know if if you, i think that can be a valid uh a valid response initially uh especially if the person doesn't have the sort of chops to back that up um you know mm-hmm. i certainly wouldn't make a, a bold statement like that but i i think for you know, I think if you're T.S. Eliot, you can say that, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I really like the idea of having something out there that's so incredibly rich that you sort of have to sit there and, like you said, read it several times and chew on it, which, yeah, is kind of not present in the poetry that's very sort of mainstream popular these days. I think our last real kind of mainstream populist type poet was probably Robert Frost. Yeah, I've I've heard that shared too. But I think I think that uh, this is such a 
this is such a, a rich conversation to have because not a rich conversation like, oh, this is what Richard always talks about. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, like I've always when I can when I can decode a really complex and esoteric poem, I feel this surge of kind of pride, like intellectually. And like, you know, I feel elite because not everyone can get this stuff. Right. And so there's a little bit of ugliness in it, but at the same time, like poetry is a, is a way to, you know, we want to layer a lot of ideas and we want to say a lot with a few words. And that's, that's what's one of the things that's wonderful about poetry. Mm -hmm. I think that the Bible is a text, you know, you know, it's not all poetry, but the Bible's a text that is really easily accessible for uh, a little kid, you know, or someone that can't even read, right? The, the concepts and the, the, beauty, the beauty and the concepts accessible, but it's mm -hmm. also complex and rich and layered enough to, to satisfy, you know, mm -hmm. P PhD folks that yeah. uh, can read it over and over again. And so I, I don't know if we have to pick one or the other, you know, like, oh, this is surface level, mainstream, superficial junk yeah. food and this is uh only for the the select few mm -hmm. yeah well i mean i think okay. yeah i think a truly great poet you know maybe can find the middle ground you know there were there were kind of various cultural and artistic reasons that there was this really hard turn toward the highbrow i'd say probably after world war one with the modernist movement mm -hmm. but before then you know poetry was much more accessible i'd say uh something like you know robert browning was fairly popular um, but is also studied academically to this day, you know, so is someone like Robert Frost and, you know, going back someone like Homer as well. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the Iliad was popular entertainment, but it was also for centuries considered the apex of high culture. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is so interesting too. And like, I was thinking when you mentioned T.S. Eliot earlier, I was thinking about like the, there, uh, I haven't done a lot of looking into this, but like there, it, there is like an interesting focus in that, like mid 20th century range where like a lot of the poetry coming out is something you have to pick apart like a lawyer you know and that's mm -hmm. really interesting so surely like that wasn't always the case so that's really interesting this needs to be like a five-part episode but um <laughs> i'm having fun guys yeah mm -hmm. me too so let's just go around we can actually all three of us can answer this um go around real quick and share just a couple of your favorite poets um doesn't have to be of all time it could be could be just someone you're enjoying lately uh, let's drop a couple names. Mm -hmm. um, so I've I've mentioned Elliot a few times. Obviously, I really like Elliot. I like Robert Frost. Need to read more of him. Um, and I just recently read through Songs of Innocence and Experience by William Blake, and that was a that was a really really good experience. Uh, Blake was Blake was a, a fascinating guy with a lot of really interesting and some kind of wild ideas, but his poetry is just so strange in that you can have a poem that's just childlike, like little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? And you, you read it and it's like six lines and it's like, it sounds like childish nonsense. And you're just like, what is this? And then you keep reading and sort of put it in context with his other poems. And especially when you get into the parallel poems and the songs of experience. And mm. it just shows how even within a single volume, um, no poem stands on its own. Like every poem has to be read alongside every other poem mm -hmm. yeah all right i'll go next i um so those of you that consume forefront 360 probably could guess a couple of these of me but uh i really like um i really like the poetry of wendell berry he i wouldn't consider wendell berry primarily a poet like he's more an essayist but um he has a couple poems that have really 
affected me. Um, and when I was um, in the seasons of my life where I've been writing the most myself, um, I've been inspired by a particular poem of Wendell Berry's called The Peace of Wild Things. Um, in both of those times where I feel like we're like my peaks of writing uh, frequency. But so I like Wendell Berry. Um, the poet that really got me into poetry for the first place or in the first place is actually John Keats. And it's mm. funny because a lot of people use poets like Keats and like some of the romantics as like the butts of jokes of like how poetry is like so melodramatic and like, you know, <laughs> but uh, Keats odes just really do it for me. And like, I, I am a pretty sensitive person, but like, I just love them. Mm -hmm. I've probably read um, Keats's Ode to a Nightingale more than any other poem, like mm -hmm. the amount of times that I've read it. I just love that one. And there's a fantastic video on YouTube of Benedict Cumberbatch reading it. And uh, sometimes mm -hmm. I listen to that when I can't fall asleep. And <laughs> I just reread Ode on a Grecian Urn. And yeah, I, I definitely get what you're saying. It's mm -hmm. just yeah. beautiful so good like his yeah oh and when well, I, I don't want to go too far into it but the uh <laughs> I, I like that whole uh that whole like squad of romantics like keats and shelley and byron and all them so it's pretty sweet but then uh my other one this is going to sound kind of like a sunday school answer i think but uh i think it should still be said i have a copy of the book of job that's like a completely separate um it's you know like separate from the bible and it's written uh all the denotations of verse and chapter have been removed so it just reads just straight through and reading the book of job as a poem and like kind of removing yourself from its context in the bible um mm -hmm. the book of job is such a beautiful and fascinating piece Dude. of poetry i think it was i don't know if it was voltaire or somebody who said you know if you if you asked me you know, if the Bible was going to be destroyed and I could only save one book from the Bible, I should save Job wow. as just, just as a statement of, I would not personally, because I think we need like Romans or something like, <laughs> like specific details of salvation, all that. But, uh, he was just talking about, it is like the master work of, mm -hmm. of literature that mm -hmm. he would save. Well, Job does, Job does specifically reference uh, like the Redeemer and like the death of the Redeemer and all that. So like there is that in there too, but. Right. Yeah. Um, G.K. Chesterton wrote an introduction to the book of Job. Uh, it's, it's pretty short. It's maybe four or five pages, but it's excellent. And he, um, he says essentially like the two kind of pillars of the ancient world for him that become the two pillars of Western civilization uh, in terms of the two great epic poems are the Iliad and the book of Job. That's so cool. The other yeah. thing that's so epic about Job is the fact that if you look at um, like certain things, uh, I've seen like Bibles or Bible audiobooks that are structured in a chronological way from like the dates that we uh, understand the books who have been written. And it's pretty mm -hmm. awesome because Job was written in the middle. Like if you're reading the Bible chronologically, it was written during the middle of the book of Genesis so even, huh. so like, even though it was like in the Bible, it's in with, you know, the prophets, it's one of the earliest pieces of writings mm -hmm. pieces of writing that humans have, which is like, so mm -hmm. neat. it's a ridiculous, yeah. ridiculously important text. All right. Um, what do you got? Yeah. So I'll just go quick here. Um, I will say that, uh, 
one of the first poems that I, I read and was like blown away by, and it's, it's called those winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Mm. Um, I don't know a ton of like Robert Hayden's work or anything, but, uh, that was one poem that's really important to me. Um, I, I'll, I'll read any poem by Sylvia Plath. Um, I, I like a, a lot of the 20th century stuff. Um, I, I say, honestly, I've already, I've got a man crush on, uh, Dr. Benjamin Myers. I've already brought him up once on this episode, but I, uh, I just feel like he, when I read his poems, he's got a few collected works, uh, collected books of poetry, um, published. And I read a couple of them already. And I just, when I read it, I just love what he does with images and language. And he cares about people. He's not afraid. He never gets sentimental, but he's also not afraid to just express emotion and it's done so uh i just i i, I love his his work so he's my favorite is he um, your keats yeah he's my keats. <laughs> he's keats yeah i also i also really i just wanted to i know i went already but i really want to name drop uh malcolm geit he's a oh, uh, yeah. yeah he's a he's a british um he's a professor at I think Cambridge, he's an Anglican priest. Um, he has like a band. He plays music and, and he's a poet. He's just an incredible, incredibly interesting person. I got to meet him uh, when he came to give a talk at Grove City, actually. And he writes mostly kind of sonnets. And I was writing my dissertation at the time on Kerouac, and I was like, "Oh, we're not going to have anything to talk about." And when I told him that, he immediately was like, oh, I've written a poem about Jack Kerouac and like recited it right off the top of his head and what have talked about that for 10 minutes. He he writes really good poetry and he he publishes these collections that I'm going to that I really want to plug here. I'm not getting paid for this. They're just amazing. Um, one's called uh, Waiting on the Word um, and the other one's called The Word in the Wilderness. The first one's for Advent and the second one's for Lent. Um, but they're just kind of devotionals that give you a poem each day. And then like a, you know, three to five page meditation on that poem. And some of them are by Christian poets. Some of them are by non-Christian poets. Some are by, you know, old poets, you know, going as far back as like Dante. Some of them are from modern poets. Um, and he's kind of turned me on to a lot of really interesting poetry uh, through that. And a lot of really interesting poets that I didn't know about before. So I'd really highly recommend those two if you want to try to incorporate poetry into your spiritual or devotional life in any way. Okay, that's awesome. We, uh, I'd love that you dropped Malcolm Geit because we have been trying to get in contact with him recently. And, uh, so Malcolm Geit, if you're listening to this episode, please email Sean O'Hare back. (laughs) (laughs) Malcolm, Malcolm, we know you're listening. We know you're a huge huge fan of the show. Yeah. (laughs) Um, all right. I got, I got one more question for you. Um, sure. This is kind of the overarching question of forefront. So, but we'll try our best not to, you know, dive down the rabbit hole here. But uh, uh, I'm just going to open-endedly ask, what are your thoughts on the intersection of faith and the arts? So I guess some leading questions here are, um, what do you think, like, should there be something called, you know, quote-unquote Christian art or a Christian poet, Christian Christian writer? Or um, if not, what kind of writing should writers of faith be doing? What do you think? Hmm. That's interesting. I definitely think there should be such a thing as as Christian art. I think that art sort of has such a powerful uh, influence on shaping culture that you can't expect it to exist in any sort of detached way. Um, I know a lot of 
kind of movements in the mainstream arts are toward something much more culturally engaged or activist even. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that we as Christians need to shrink away from saying, yes, here's the gospel. Here's the, here's that thing we have to offer the world and here it is represented through art. Um, so I do think there should be such a thing as the Christian arts that said, I would kind of shrink back from putting it at any kind of box necessarily, mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think there's any particular form or genre or way of telling stories that needs to be the Christian way of doing it. I think that's an important distinction to make too, because sometimes like I I've encountered in discussions of faith and the arts, I've encountered people that think that like, oh, well, Christians engage with this type of art or like this style of music or something like that and not others. And I think that's pretty limiting. So that's an interesting distinction. You know, you could even take something like uh, the films of Martin McDonough, who hmm. I don't know is, I don't think is necessarily a Christian, but is certainly someone who's very Christ haunted. <laughs> and Good way to put it. His films, I think, are just full of of Christian imagery and and symbolism. He made three billboards, right? Yeah, he made three billboards. He made Seven Psychopaths, and he oh, made In Bruges. And I mean, In Bruges is just this incredible film about about sin and grace and redemption. There's, um, you know, Colin Farrell's character says is is clearly just crippled with guilt, and his friend wants to take him to this cathedral as a tourist, where there's supposedly a, a vial of Jesus' blood. Um, I've been there in Belgium, by the way. the The blood's bogus. It's from the <laughs> 1100s, but it's an interesting story. They still charge you to see it, though. Um, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yeah, there's this scene where he's like, "No, I'm scared to. I don't want to." And he goes, "Do I? Do I have to?" And his friend goes, "Do you have to? Of course you don't have to. It's Jesus's blood." Right. <laughs> um, you know, but like it, it's there, yeah. and uh, yeah, the it, it, I don't know. It, there's so it's definitely a rough around the edges movie. There's a lot of violence and a lot of really harsh language. Um, but I know there's a lot of kind of Christian artists and filmmakers who are really trying to create entertainment that accurately reflects the uh, kind of all the vicissitudes of the world around us rather than presenting something that's kind of boring and sanitized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think one way we could create a Christian art that really speaks to people beyond sort of the Christian bubble and is more edifying to people within the Christian bubble is to almost reverse engineer it. Like look at, look at art that doesn't present itself necessarily as Christian art and try to pull out Christian themes from that and think like, well, why does this theme that's just pure gospel come out so powerfully in this film or in this novel or in this painting that was made by someone who doesn't actually, uh, you know, overtly accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and think, well, okay, maybe what's a way I could make that statement in an equally powerful way? Um, what is it about that that hits so hard and that lands so well? And how could I use that in my own art to potentially be a little more overt about it? I love that. Yeah, that's really well said, man. Thanks so much for being on the show, man. It's such a blast talking. We might have to have you back on for another episode about movies or something. I don't oh, know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been a real privilege and honor and a real fun time. All right. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Forefront 360. If you enjoy the show, leave us a rate and a review on whatever app or service you use. It helps spread the word about what we're doing here at Forefront Festival. 
Until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.